Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, glad to be glad to be with you. And we have uh, joining John and I for this segment. Uh, we have Richard Samp, uh, Senior Litigation Counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Welcome back to Administrative Static, Rich. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Mark. So uh, we asked Rich to, jo- to join us because he is the uh, the Counsel of Record and, and Principal Author of an Amicus Brief uh, that NCLA uh, filed uh, on behalf of a few different uh, uh, groups. Um, as well as on behalf of, of NCLA's client, Crystal Maroney, uh, in uh, a case called Consumer Financial Protection Bureau at Al v. Consumer, excuse me, v. Community Financial Services Association of America Limited uh, at Al. And this is a case uh, that the Supreme Court has already agreed uh, to hear uh, because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals struck down the method by which the uh, CPSC funds itself. And, and Rich, uh, uh, you, you have, fu- have filed uh, earlier, you had filed a cert petition in NCLA's own case on this same issue. So what's the, uh, why is, uh, is that the only reason NCLA is interested in this, uh, in this uh, case for filing, a, uh, for filing an amicus brief? Or what's the, what's the story here? Well, obviously we are interested because we have the interests of our client, Crystal Moroni at heart. Uh, but more broadly, this case raises important separation of powers issues. Uh, the appropriations clause of, of uh, Article One of the Constitution says that basically the power of the purse is supposed to be in the hands of Congress and no other branch of government. But there were some members of Congress back in 2010 who didn't like the idea of future Congresses being able to cut back on the budget of this newly created uh, financial watchdog that they created called the CFPB. And so what they did is they basically took funding of the CFPB out of the hands of Congress. They said that every year CFPB could uh, just simply appropriate for itself an essentially unlimited amount of funding and uh, this money wasn't even to come from directly from the U.S. Treasury. Rather, it was going to come out of the budget of the Federal Reserve. So, I bet the Department of Defense would like to be able to do that. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and as a matter of fact, if, if this particular financial structure is upheld, you can be sure that there will be people in Congress that will say, well, we've got a whole bunch of favored federal uh, bureaucratic agencies, enforcement agencies that we would like to um, uh whose budget can't be cut in the future. So we'll, we'll fund it exactly the same way. So it, it presents a real constitutional dilemma. There's never been an agency like this before. What happened was that uh, two courts of appeals addressed the issue and they came to opposite conclusions. And so under those circumstances, uh, it's un- not un- at all unusual that the Supreme Court agreed to decide the case. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit down in New Orleans 
held that uh, that this uh, unusual financial structure did violate the uh, Article One Appropriations Clause. Our case, the one that we brought on behalf of a, uh, a very small law firm headed by a woman by the name of Crystal Maroney, um, our case was in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York, and that court ruled against us. So we have filed a cert petition of our own, but uh, the U.S. government coming out of the Fifth Circuit got to the uh, Supreme Court first, so that is the case that the court is uh, is going to hear on the merits. Our case is simply uh, being held in abeyance by the court, likely until after it rules on the existing case, which, to make it a little bit shorter, I will in the future refer to as CFPV versus CFSA. The name, <laughs> the full name is a lot longer. Yeah, it is, it is a lot longer. And, and and I should mention that you filed this on behalf of the Buckeye Institute and, and the Manhattan Institute uh, as well. Uh, the Manhattan Institute uh, for, for Policy Research out of New York City and the Buckeye Institute out of the, the state of Ohio. Um, is, is there a particular, uh, so you say that there's this, this funding mechanism and that it's, that it's unusual. It, is there any other agency in the government that's funded this way at all? I mean, is it, is it really sui generis? I mean, it, this is, this is not just unusual, but really unprecedented. Yes, it is. This is, first of all, it's the only enforcement agency that is funded this way. Now, of course, throughout our history, there have been organizations like the Postal Service that basically are funded out of the services that they sell uh, to the general public. You buy your postage stamps and that's how they get their money. Uh, but that is not this situation at all. This is uh, an enforcement agency that is getting its money uh, directly from uh, the uh, uh, public fisc, except they're doing it through a double layer of protection because they get their money from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, and uh, and now with after sale of law, uh, the the head of the CFPB is able to be fired directly by the president. There's no tenure protection there anymore, so the, the president really has very direct control over this piece of of the budget, which is something that other than maybe. The budget for the White House itself, uh, you don't really see elsewhere in the government. And it, it presents a real problem because uh, the, the argument on the other side is, well, if Congress doesn't like this financial structure, it's always entitled anytime it wants to repeal that structure and, and return the CFPB back to the normal annual appropriations process. The problem with that, though, is no president is going to say, um, gee, I'm going to voluntarily give up my power to uh, um, uh, to create the, the size of the CFPB budget every year. As a result, it would take a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress to overcome the presidential veto and to get this law changed, which is why really the courts are the only place to turn to. One of the things that you focus on in the amicus brief, Rich, is the abusive treatment that the CFPB has visited on Crystal Maroney. And and you posit that really this is something that is likely has happened because the agency is operating outside the normal appropriations process. Can you explain your thinking there a little bit more and what you had to say in the brief on that point? Well, sure. First of all, 
if you have unlimited funds, essentially, as CFPB does, then you, you don't really have to make priority choices. And you can decide that you can do any investigation you want and you can throw whatever amount of resources you want at it. You can boil the ocean. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Crystal Maroney was a small uh, operated a small law firm and they decided, well, let's, let's just look in to see what's going on. They had no evidence that there was any wrongdoing. They have never claimed there was any wrongdoing. No complaints even, I think. Right. And, uh, during the course of their investigation, her uh, rating from the better business bureau improved from a minus to a yet nonetheless, they kept after her with repeated, uh, investigation demands, CIDs, they're called, and the result was eventually she was driven out of business. It was just taking up too much of a percentage of the overall time of her business. She couldn't afford to continue to operate. And and even they asked for attorney-client privilege material. Sure. Which that alone causes a lawyer how much trouble. And what uh, they said was, well, give us a detailed log of every single document and maybe we'll consider it one by one. Well, that was thousands of documents, and and they uh, complained about a lack of a log, but what did they expect? She already uh, was spending half of her time doing this. Did she expect that, did they expect that she was going to uh, create thousands of pages of logs in order to be able to raise the, the objection in more detail? Well, the, I, I just want to make sure. one other point, which is that uh, in addition to having unlimited funding, also... The law says that the Appropriations Committee of neither the Senate nor the House uh, is permitted to hold uh, oversight hearings. And so if Congress really has no control over what's going on, then of course an agency is able to uh, run roughshod over individual rights. Uh, uh, they, And in fact, that as far as, as uh, uh, supporters of the agency are concerned, that's a, a feature, not a bug. They want the agency to be able to operate free from any oversight at all by Congress. But that that leads to the kind of abusive investigations that uh, Crystal Maroney endured. Absolutely. I mean, I can say uh, as a as a former staffer for a member of Congress that if you got complaints about the, what, what an agency was doing, a lot of times a member would be they didn't want to interfere in a particular proceeding against somebody. They, there was a lot of uh, concern about that. But if there was a pattern that Congress noticed of of going after small time people or whatever, or in this case, I would say really they were trying to run her out of business. I mean, that was seemed to be the goal of the harassment was to put her out of business. They knew this was going to put her out of business and they didn't care. Yeah, the uh, CFPB has generally taken the uh, position that debt collection is a bad thing, that that uh, poor consumers who are in debt really ought not to be harassed at all. And uh, therefore, writing a letter to them is highly suspect. And that's what she used to do. She her law firm would write letters to uh, uh, to. Uh, debtors and say, we'd like to work something out for you. Um, can we try to work out some sort of repayment plan? And as far as CFPB is concerned, really uh, debt collectors uh, ought to be run out of business. So where does the case go from here, Rich? Well, the Supreme Court uh, is hearing uh, oral arguments likely in the fall uh, on this this constitutional issue. And it, it's likely to uh, issue a decision sometime next spring. Uh, if uh, Justice Kavanaugh has anything to say on the decision, it's likely uh, that uh, the agency will be 
uh, uh, their funding structure will be struck down. He has written uh, various uh, opinions while he was on the D.C. Circuit about the Appropriations Clause, and it's clear that he feels strongly that Congress ought to retain the power of the purse. And has the government filed its reply brief yet? No, the government's reply brief will be due in a couple of weeks. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. Again, the case is Consumer Financial Protection Bureau v. Consumer Financial Services Association of America. Good. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth back on the horse here with uh, John Vecchioni, and good to be good to be with you. For our last segment today, we wanted to talk about a case uh, that is uh, coming out of uh, a state near and dear to my heart, uh, the District of Kansas, a uh, case going up on appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. The case is Johnson v. Smith, uh, and it's uh, the Justin Smith DVM in his official capacity as animal health commissioner at the Kansas Department of Agriculture. And, uh, and, and John, what, what uh, appears to have happened in this case is that the Department of Agriculture uh, in Kansas put some regulations on uh, people who, who train hunting dogs uh, that essentially require them to you know, sort of be home all the time. And be, you know, if, if there's ever sort of a surprise inspection or what have you, they have to, you know, they have to be able to show up within 30 minutes to meet the inspector and what have you. They, they could never go to Iceland, you know, for example, on a trip, uh, that would not be something you could do. If <laughs> or <you're> Safeway. Raised... <laughs> oh, apparently. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really kind of odd uh, situation, certainly for any, you know, and these are not uh, industrial sort of, you know, enterprise. These are mom and pop sort of uh, uh, anybody who's ever adopted a dog from a, you know, from, from a, uh, from a kennel or, or from a, uh, you know, from someplace that raises, raises puppies or, or has taken their dog to one of these, you know, sorts of, of, uh, hunting, uh, training things. Uh, I guarantee you it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a franchise. I mean, these are, these are, these are small operations. And, uh, and so there were some problems with, uh, with that. And, and, um, you know, I think that, that Mr. Johnson wanted to, wanted to take issue with, with some of these regulations that were being brought to bear uh, on, on the business that, that he and his wife, uh, uh, I say wife, I guess I'm not sure about that, but anyway, that, that, that he and, and, and a small, uh, very small shop were, were running there at, at Covey, Co- Covey Fine, probably Covey actually, like a Covey of Quail, mm-hmm. Co- Covey Fine Kennel LLC. Um, and the particular issue, John, that I think might be of most interest to NCLA in this case is this whole issue of whether or not there is a pervasively regulated industry exception uh, to the Fourth Amendment? Because the Fourth Amendment means that we're all secure uh, in our in our uh, from unreasonable searches and seizures, secure in our papers and effects, and and certainly homes and so forth. Uh, but there's this court created exception. It's not anywhere in the text of the Fourth Amendment for for certain, but 
that says that if there is a pervasively regulated industry, then maybe there's a reduced expectation of, of privacy for folks. And I guess, John, I mean, at the margins, I can imagine some justification for the pervasively regulated industry exception. I'll take nuclear power as an example. And the government invented nuclear power. I could imagine that if you were uh, building a backyard nuclear reactor, that the government might have something to say about that. You might, you know, you might not have the full Fourth Amendment uh, panoply of protection. I understand the stuff to generate is very toxic. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it, indeed, and and the consequences of doing it badly can uh, can easily uh, go outside of your backyard. So, you know, I, I I guess I understand that, but I don't understand. And John, this was an issue in in your victory down in Mexican Gulf Coast. Mexican, Mex, just Mexican, Mexican Gulf, Gulf. Uh, earlier, earlier Fishing. this year. Yeah. Uh, with the, with the charter boat fishermen. So, uh, so tell, tell me, am I misunderstanding this pervasively regulated industry? Is there well, some reason why hunting dogs are different than, than charter boats? Are, you know, so, um, when I saw this case, I was like, you, you gotta tell dog breeding is pervasively regulated. And, you know, normally you go back to colonial times and I live in, I live in Fairfax County and, uh, we had Lord Fairfax. So we had the only British Lord who lived here. And uh, Lord Fairfax kept all these hunting dogs, right? Nobody went over and, and told him what to do. And in fact, George Washington would go ride to hounds with him. And George Mason would go talk about They did not go around saying, oh, they, they just exchanged dogs for all their various things. And, and this is how everything was in this country until I bet you at least mid-century of the 20th century, right? And then, and oh, before they started regulating yeah, dog breeding at all, at all, yeah, right? Well, at so. all. And then yeah. there was puppy mill problems and all this. But the whole idea of pervasively regulated is, um, you know, first, it's been something that's been regulated since it started because it was obviously so dangerous. And it's things like explosives, right? <laughs> the government has always said, watch your explosives. <laughs> Right, right. Um, nukes, like you said, yeah. you know, stuff like that. You Mining. Just, you just can't drive around with a bunch of fertilizer and diesel in your car. They don't, you know, they, they don't, very not, not big on that. Frowned upon by yeah. all the authorities. Yeah. So in any event, so it's that sort of thing. And, and it's the sort of thing where you can go back and you can see it was regulated from when it, from the get go. Um, and dog breeding is just simply so outside of it. And I, in the Mexican Gulf case, we looked at a number, I, I can't recall the Supreme Court names of all the cases now. But um, it was Brennan and Thurgood Marshall when this doctrine emerged who said, you know, you've really got to cabin this doctrine really closely because the courts and the government will want to expand it to every industry once they get a regulation in. And they call it's a called shot because, you know, the Fifth Circuit said we are not making a closely regulated industry ever. We're just not doing it. There, whatever the four are, you know, uh, there that's going to be the four. That's Scrap Supreme Court said. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, automobile disposal places, because ever since they've been disposing automobiles, they've been regulating it apparently. Yeah. But the point is, that's it. It's it's the four things that Supreme Court has said. But what's happened here is, if you have dog breeding as pervasively regulated, meaning it was regulated from the start, it's been heavily regulated. And that it, we say that one of the tests under Patel is that it also it's not has heavily regulated either. It's pervasive, pervasively, closely, closely, closely regulated. Closely regulated. Okay. Yes. Closely regulated. And, and they, the word pervasive is often used in okay. the cases. You're right. But it's closely regulated. And that's just not the case with dog breeding because you know how dogs are. Anyone can do it. 
You know, it's not like right. it's it's not like if you have a gift for it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, matter of fact, we got one of our puppies from a, a guy down even below Fairfax in what I call real Virginia. And he bred dogs on an old Confederate um, gold mine and uh, and people would bring him his dogs. And, and if he liked it. He that's the dog he'd breed. So, you know, I, I just think it's absolutely um, it's absolutely a uh it's traduced all precedent to have this industry be closely regulated, and it, and it's exactly what Brennan and Marshall were warning about 50, 60 years ago. Well, and I thought what you were going to say, but since you didn't, I will. If this is a pervasively regulated industry, then Katie, bar the door, because, I mean, I think there's about 500 industries that would come in behind it, if not 5,000 industries that would come in behind it, because if this is where you draw the line, Boy, it's hard to see what isn't pervasively regulated. That's right. And even if you need a license, that's not what makes it pervasively regulated. You know, even even there's big fights about licensure nowadays in the courts, but even that doesn't make it pervasively regulated. That's just sort of have you met this bar? And if you met this bar, then, yes, you're in the industry. Um, that is not what it means. It means that the government has taken such a great interest over such amount of time and, and such a level that we don't believe anymore there's a, an expectation of privacy. I still think, though, that that there's still trespass. You know, there's still the sure. trespass. So we'll we'll look into that. But but anyways, I do think that this is has yeah, yeah. to be an outlier. Yeah, if the government did show up in his property and he wasn't there, they, the government can't just come on there with no reason and right. start poking around. I mean, that's a violation. That's a trespass. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess not according to the Honorable Catherine Brattle, uh, who, who I, I do know, by the way, Judge <laughs> Judge Brattle, uh, uh, she was uh, she was the person at the U.S. District Court who was responsible for coming up and begging for more funds for the judiciary when uh, when uh, Congressman Pompeo was uh, was on Capitol Hill. So I, I met her in that begging context. Mark. Uh, that another dog training. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was not intentional. <laughs> And I would also say, uh, for Judge Rattle, she she was not uh, she was not one to bend the knee, you know, uh, to, to, uh, to Capitol Hill very much. But uh, uh, but anyway, I am disappointed in this decision from Judge Rattle. I thought she had uh, uh, you know better head on her shoulders than to consider this related industry. I think it's it's clearly not. And and let me give some props to to uh, to to some of our colleagues out there in the public interest litigation yeah. world. Uh, the Kansas Justice Institute is the group behind this case. Uh, Sam McRoberts uh, over there is uh, a friend of yours and mine, uh, John, and and somebody who we have turned to occasionally uh, for advice uh, when we've had cases in Kansas uh, and, and and other times as well. Always enjoy uh, getting getting together with Sam and and was pleased to to see this case that that he and his team uh, are bringing. I don't know for sure if NCLA is going to. Be jumping into this case, uh, but whether we do or we don't, with you know, with an amicus brief, uh, we'll keep you apprised of of what's going on here. I think it's uh, it's a very very interesting case, and um, there are other issues in it as well, John. Well, but I think this is the one that that we would be the most well, interested in. The other thing, our our show runs out of Colorado, which is in the in the tenth, and there's a lot of wide open spaces like dog breeding places and cattle breeding places. There's it, you could have this pervasively regulated spread throughout the whole 10th circuit for things that are not for all kinds of agricultural type things. It, it could really, it could really uh, take away people's fourth amendment rights out in the wide open spaces where they don't think that there's any way that their expectation of privacy has, has been diminished. Right. Yeah. Because, that's why they live out there. By yeah, the way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So people live out there and, and this type of thing could suddenly take away fourth amendment rights. You thought you had 
um, when you have no idea that you what you were engaging in. I mean, why not chickens? It isn't it isn't pervasively regulated. So I I do watch this. I hope the tenth moves towards the Fifth Circuit on this, and I I really think that this case really gives them a chance to say whoa. It just, it just dawned on me all of a sudden. I don't know why I didn't remember this sooner, but I know a dog breeder in Kansas because uh, well, he may not be around anymore. But when I was a kid, the, uh, I played for the Greyhounds for a couple seasons for uh, <laughs> for my uh, you know for my youth soccer team. And the owner of the team, or the guy who sponsored the jerseys for the team yeah, and everything, yeah. he was a dog breed. He, he, <laughs> he bred Greyhounds. That's where that's why the team was named the Greyhounds. And uh, uh, and I don't I don't think this sort of regime was in place back then but but one of the other things they complain about that maybe i'll mention here is that all of these all this pervasive regulation gets in interferes with their ability to travel interstate and that there's a fundamental right at issue there as well and i think that's interesting but anyway again the case is is johnson v smith it's going to be up at the united states court of appeals for the 10th circuit and we'll keep you posted thanks for being with us on administrative static